once said that in order to improve and change and make positive change in your life, you have to suffer. You need to experience pain before you identify the need for positive change. And right now I'm wondering, lads, have we had enough pain? Have, have we suffered enough that we can make this change and just change our approach to food on a daily basis? I hope so. Because I don't, my children, my kids have just lived through their first zoonotic pandemic. And I want to do everything I can to, to prevent them from having to live through another. Al's a dear friend. Uh, we created the Happy, Heart, the Happy Good course with him. He helped us with the Happy Heart course. And we ran something which was known as the Southwest Plant-Based Challenge. Uh, in this talk, Al really breaks down what a microbiome is, what how important it is to everyone listening to help and everyone alive's health. To, to every aspect of health and how it's been so evolutionary that it's so fundamental and the five key things which you can do to build your microbiome and the importance of it for everything. One of the bits that I enjoyed most, if you can last till the end of this conversation, Al just comes in with this incredibly heartfelt finish that was just about zoonotic diseases. It was, yeah, really, wow, really yeah. incredible. Really, I highly recommend you checking this out. It was, it's been one of my favorite to date. I'm going to be that bold and say it. Go out there. Uh, so stick your, stick your helmet on. Brace yourself for an incredible conversation with the wonderful Dr. Alan Desmond. Dr. Alan Desmond, Al, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, genuinely. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's um, just great to spend some time with you, lads. You know, I haven't been over home for a long time, so just getting to sit down and chat with you um, for an hour, hour and a half, whatever. I've been really looking forward to this, Dave, really. Woo! Getting a fix of Irish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, charging Al, for, up the batteries, yep. For, for people who don't know you, so you're a consultant gastroenterologist, you're from Cork, you live in Devon. We've known you for a good few years. We love you. We think you're wonderful. And I genuinely, I'd be, I'm curious of your backstory because people who, who are listening, like, you know, you're a, you're a doctor, you've been studying for 17 years, or I can't remember how long you told us, but a long time to become a consultant gastroenterologist. And you've been plant-based now the last like five years or so. And I'd love to know how that story has come about and how it happened, really. Yeah, it, it wasn't intentional, Dave, you know. I mean, well, obviously, look, I, I wanted to be a doctor, studied hard, did the Leaving Cert, um, had to repeat the Leaving Cert, in, in fact, to get the points to get into medical school. And did, you know, I went into medical school in 1995. Um, those are incredibly, you know, stressful, difficult years. Um, it's tough, you know, it, it takes a long time to become a doctor. I graduated in 2001. Went off to Australia, worked there for a year, which was absolutely wonderful. And found myself back in Ireland working at University College Cork, Cork University Hospital, um, you know, 2003, 2004. And you're at that point where you're trying to decide what your long-term medical career is going to be. You know, you've been a student for six years. You've been working as an intern or a house officer for a year or two. And you're trying to decide, are you going to go into hospital medicine or GP? Or are you going to do something different? You're going to be a surgical specialist or a, you know, a gynecologist. You know, it's amazing in medicine, actually, because when you graduate, you've got all these different uh, career tracks you might take. You might leave clinical medicine, go to public health medicine. You know, it's a really wonderful career. I'd recommend it to anyone. And Like, how, how do you go and just make that decision? Because it's such a, one of those, like, deciding what you're going to study in college. How do you decide what to specialize in? Why did you choose gastroenterology? 
Well, I guess there's some, you know, young trainee doctors who go into, into the career and they've got some pretty fixed ideas about what they want to do long term. But for most of us, you go and you see and you do and you, you experience different specialties. So in the first few years as a doctor working at the hospital, you rotate through. I did, you know, care of the elderly, neurology, urology, orthopedics. And you go through all of these different specialists, specialties that had endocrinology. And in about 2003, 2004, I found myself my first rotation in the gastroenterology unit. So now I'm the most junior doctor on a team of doctors and nurses and dietitians and physiotherapists and everybody else who are taking care of people who are hospitalized with gut health issues. And one thing that struck me was, you know, uh, you know, so I'm in my early 20s, most of the patients that you meet in the hospital who are very unwell, um, the majority of them, you know, for a 20 something year old, they look old. They're in their 40s, 50s and 60s or 70s or 80s. But here in gastroenterology, there was all these young people who were in hospital with this condition called inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And that interested me. It's like these people, these patients look entirely healthy and young and functional. And, you know, they're newly married or they're in jobs, they're in careers, they're in university. And here they are in the hospital with sections of their gut that are inflamed. And the first thing that attracted me into gastroenterology as a clinician was witnessing just how much we could improve those people's quality of life by getting them better and investigating them and figure out what's going on. I remember a young man called Yosef, who was a builder who was working in Ireland during the Celtic Tiger period. He'd come over from Poland and he was just working all hours and he had a young family to support. And he came into my clinic when I was, you know, working in my first rotation in gastroenterology. And he was very unwell, guys. You know, he had terrible diarrhea. He couldn't eat. His quality of life was terrible. He was a builder, but he looked like a 14-year-old boy. You know, he was anemic and sort of stooped over. And I remember we had him admitted to hospital and I was just been trained how to do colonoscopy. So I did his camera test, had a look inside his bowel, made a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. And within a few days, we'd start on medical treatment. And just then we had these brand new medical treatment, these new medications called biologic drugs, infliximab, but had just been licensed for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. So we, we gave this new fancy expensive drug to Yosef, got him started on treatment. And a few months later, um, you know, he'd gotten home from hospital and I met him at clinic for follow-up. And because we'd fixed his gut health, he walked into the room like a different person. He looked exactly like you'd expect a strong builder in his 20s, a big upright guy, muscle on him. And I thought, wow, we've transformed this man's quality of life. And in, within gastroenterology, well, because you do the endoscopy, you look at the living organ that you're treating, you form an impression by just looking at it. You take tissue samples and you request scans and you work with other specialists. It's a very collaborative, very involved specialty. So that's what attracted me to be a gastroenterologist in the first place. And then, you know, it takes a long time to get signed off as a specialist. That was maybe 2003, 2004, it was 2012 by the time I'd completed all my training and was able to become a consultant gastroenterologist. So, how so many yeah, years it takes a long time. How many years of study is that? So entered medical school in 1995 
and finally qualified as a consultant gastroenterologist in 2012. So, um, so, so that is 17 years. It's 17 what? years, but but the but genuinely the, the training never stops. I mean, I'm speaking to you now, I've just come from a training session and, and that's the great thing in medicine. You know, the training never stops, the learning never stops. And I guess it's the kind of ongoing learning and trying to find evidence-based answers for my patients who want to really restore their true gut health. That's what led me to, with this, you know, this passion for healthier, healthier food and putting healthier food on our plates and because there's so much power there lads you know in terms of both preventing and treating these conditions you know and your journey to a plant-based diet like you're a wonderful advocate advocate for a plant-based diet and as you said evidence base is kind of your approach to medicine like you didn't naturally kind of gravitate towards a plant-based diet because it was the animals or because it was like you were doing yoga and went with your cacao ceremonies it was more it was the evidence base that led you down this road well all you know i mean all the yoga and cacao ceremonies and all that stuff is great i mean i'm not i'm not knocking it but for me it was just trying to provide evidence-based answers for my questions and you know evidence-based answers for my patients and going right back to you know my first rotation when i was getting really interested particularly in inflammatory bowel disease you know because this was a very fascinating condition to me because it's such becoming so common now and I remember another young man, you know, maybe he was about 19 years old and he was an inpatient on our ward and he had a condition called Crohn's disease. Now, Crohn's disease is another form of inflammatory bowel disease, causes inflammation in sections of the lining of the gut. It makes you you know, sick, gives you abdominal pain, diarrhea. You can't absorb your calories. You're underweight. You always need to know where the bathroom is. Um, if the pain is very severe, you can end up in hospital. And, and this young man was in hospital with a new diagnosis of Crohn's disease. And just like Yosef, we'd had him on, you know, steroid, powerful steroid medications for about three days. And the inflammation was reducing in his gut and he was starting to feel better and he was feeling like eating again. And so I was on the ward round with my boss and the other more senior doctors on the team and the nursing staff. And basically you're like the, you're the, the, I guess the, um, the guy who has to get all the blood results together, need to know what the vital signs are, you know, you just present everything to the boss and here's how he's doing well. And we're planning to start this new treatment tomorrow. And, you know, so the boss has all the information and the young man and his mom was there to support him. because he's only 19 years old said, well, look, I'm hungry now. Is there anything I should eat doctor or anything I shouldn't eat? And that question, what should I eat? That's a question that every patient asks their gastroenterologist. And in a way, it's a a question we all ask ourselves three times a day, what should I eat? Now, for that young man, the answer that he got from my boss at the time was, it doesn't matter. Calories are just calories. And calories are important for healing. So eat whatever you like. And my boss turned to his mum and said, does he like McDonald's? Why don't you bring him in some McDonald's? We've got to get some calories into this kid. And that surprised the young man and that surprised his mom. And, you know, it surprised me at the time, but I, I was in a very early stage of my training. Okay. So this is my boss who's saying this, but as I, as, as I continued, that very much reflected the thinking at the time though, right? Calories are just calories, calories, are just a calorie. But as I went through my training guys, and you know, I went down a lot of other routes, ended up working in Oxford for a while and in general medicine, but I was always on track to become a consultant gastroenterologist. I realized that every single patient with a gut health problem asks the same question genuinely. They will all ask you at some point, doctor, is there any foods I should eat or I shouldn't eat? And in about 2004, there was a paper published in one of our big medical journals 
And it, it was the subject of an editorial within the medical journal, which is kind of the mark of a significant paper. You know, the editors of the journal have written an editorial on it. And the headline of the editorial was ulcerative colitis, time to take out the meat, question mark. And that was the first paper that I read that had looked at diet and lifestyle and outcomes in inflammatory bowel disease. It was a study that was done over here in the UK where I work now. And what they had found was that among people who had ulcerative colitis, if you looked at their dietary intakes and all the other variables, over the period of, of 12 months, the individuals who consumed alcohol or consumed red meat were far more likely to have a relapse and need steroids or need hospitalization. And that was one of the first papers I ever read that went into the mechanisms of why that is so. And it was focusing on the fact that when you consume meat, you're, you're um, promoting uh, microbes within the gut microbiome that metabolize meat and produce hydrogen sulfide gas, which is an eggy smelling gas, which is directly toxic to the lining of the gut and has been implicated in causing ulcerative colitis. So I started telling my patients with ulcerative colitis to avoid alcohol and red meat. And that paper led me to read more papers. And by the time I become the consultant in 2012, and now, you know, you're the senior doc, you're the consultant, you're the attending or whatever. So it's your name is on the front of the, the chart now. So it's your responsibility whether your patient gets better or not. And you've got to work with them to make sure they get the best advice, the best medication, the best procedure. But for me as a gastroenterologist, I think the best evidence-based dietary advice is absolutely baked into that. And when you look at the evidence around Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, which were initially the, the big topics for me, but when you look at any gut health issue, the, the evidence all points in the same direction. The junk foods and the emulsifiers and the maltodextrins, the junk food, the food-like substances that now make up like 60% of the food that's consumed in the Western world, these have real measurable negative effects on our gut health and our gut microbiome. And we need to tell our patients that. Do you consume processed food? Yes, okay. You have Crohn's disease. The chemicals that are added to these processed foods have been directly implicated in causing and aggravating this condition. So I want you to stop eating junk food. And we also need to be very honest with our patients that if you're choosing to get your calories from a lot of animal products, then you are exerting negative effects on your gut microbiome and your gut health. And the fewer animal products that you consume, the better. And for most patients who have milder disease or milder symptoms, quite frankly, <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis, they can eat whatever the hell they want. They'll probably feel the same. So they can make those changes. And I'm really blessed now to work with a team of uh, you know, registered dietitians who take the same approach. And we've really, I mean, time and time again, I've helped patients and seen my patients transform their, their, their health and their outlook and their digestive health with healthy dietary advice, just pushing back against the standard Western diet and functioning more, excuse me, focusing more on fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds and all these healthy foods that every dietary guideline in the world agrees are healthy. And they're healthy for our gut, they're healthy for your body. So in a way I've become 
a really passionate advocate for this because I want more gastroenterologists to talk to their patients about food. I want more GPs to talk to their patients about food. And I want people to talk to each other about the food that they choose to eat every day because it's super important. I mean, I've said it to you guys before, you know, that question that that young man asked us that, that time, you know, 18 years ago, what should I eat? Could be one of the most important questions of the 21st century. And when my patients ask me that question, I make sure that they understand that yes, food does matter. And yes, there is science showing that changing your diet can really, really benefit your health. Wow. Al, you're brilliant. I love your stories. They really bring it to life. Yeah. In terms of just for anyone listening that doesn't know what the word technical words like microbiome can like I was reading there recently that we have approximately a hundred trillion human cells and approx or sorry. 10 trillion human cells and approximately 100 trillion microorganisms. And the majority of these live in our microbiome. Can you talk about this and just explain the reality of all this and what this means? Oh, of course. I mean, it's, I, I was very lucky, you know, uh, lads, when I was, you know, back at that time when I was first becoming interested in, in gut health and digestive health and being a gastroenterologist, I was working under gut microbiome pioneers like Professor Fergus Shannon, who set up APC Microbiome Ireland, along with colleagues, Professor Eamon Quigley. So these were some of the researchers who really, you know, helped to coin the phrase uh, gut microbiome or gut microbiota and are still leading the world in many ways in microbiome research. And I worked for a couple of years as a postgrad at APC Microbiome Ireland. I was involved in research papers on the topic. So it's always been there. Um, although I got pulled out of research and back into clinical medicine, because that's where my heart lies. I, where I really thrive is when I'm seeing patients. That's when I'm in my, in my happy place. So I, I left the research world, went back into clinical medicine. But the gut microbiome has been like a thread the whole way through um, during my medical career. So, you know, human beings are really complex creatures. We're really complex organisms. We've been around for about 200,000 years in our current form modern humans. And we think of ourselves as being single individuals, you know, walking the planet, doing what we need to do. But we're not. We're, we're symbiotic organisms. And in fact, within every part of our body, but particularly within our large belt, particularly within our colon, we are carrying hundreds of trillions of microbes, bacteria, vir viruses, yeasts, and archaea. And as you said, we've got 10 times more microorganism cells than we have human cells. We've got 100 times more genetic material in microorganisms than we do in our human body. And what's fascinating for me, guys, is that these microbes, these bacteria, viruses, yeasts, and archaea, these are the direct descendants of the Earth's very earliest living beings or living things. The, the, when life started on Earth, you know, between two and a half and three and a half billion years ago, it was unicellular organisms that looked a lot like bacteria and yeasts in archaea. So we view ourselves as being separate to this world. We're intimately part of it. And these microbes have been with us throughout human evolution. And on an individual basis, our individual gut microbiome begins to form probably at the moment of birth, probably possibly even earlier. So as soon as we're born, that first breath of air, that first touch, that, that first sip of breast milk, 
we begin to populate our gut microbiome. And those microbes come from the environment. We live on a microbial world. If you know, it's been said before, if you don't like bacteria, you're on the wrong planet. The, the surface of this earth is teeming with microorganisms and they begin to populate our digestive tract. They help us to digest our very first meal. Our mother's milk contains nutrition, but it also contains prebiotic fiber, which is of no nutritional value to the baby, but helps to promote the growth of healthy bacteria. And those bacteria are crucial to developing a healthy GI tract, a healthy immune system, a gastrointestinal tract. Yeah, so your, so your small intestine, your bowel will not develop properly unless you have a gut microbiome. Your immune system will not develop properly without your gut microbiome and your body will not develop properly if you don't have a healthy gut microbiome. And not only do these bacteria predominantly help to you know, uh, do all of those things when we're developing as a baby, as a child, throughout our life, they exert an incredibly real and measurable benefit and effect on our biology. Um, they've been described as a control center for human biology. It weighs, you know, our microbiome is probably an organ in and of itself. And it, it, beyond being an organ, it's an incredibly versatile organ. And once you're a grown-up, the top three determinants of what your gut microbiome looks like and how it functions and what postbiotic substances it produces, which impact your health, the top three determinants are food, food, and food. Other things are important too, right? But it's all about the food. The wonderful Dr. Michael Clapper has been saying this for years. He's not a gut health expert. He's not a, a, a microbiome guy or a gastroenterologist, but you know Michael, and he says it's about the food, it's about the food, it's about the food. And that's just as true for the gut microbiome as it is for overall human health. That, that's that's mind-bending. Like, it really is. So it's like, and we've been reading and digging into this for years now, but even just hearing you say it, like that it's, we are a symbiotic, we are in a perfect, harmonious, symbiotic relationship with nature and always have been and with one another. And I remember a friend recently said to me, he had studied kind of microbiology or something in in Cambridge. He was a guy, a friend of a friend. And he said to me, well, he said like, you know, like we were identical twins. He said, but we live in separate houses and we have separate partners and separate kids. And he said, like, you're genetically identical. You're identical twins. But he said, uh, like bacterially or bacteriologically, whatever that word is, we are fundamentally different. We'll be more like our spouses because, you know, once you live with someone, you become more bacterially genetic, the same like I'm not articulating that very well, but you probably get the sense. You're doing great, Dave. No, I, I understand. Is that true? What you're no, you're right. It it is important, and you know when we look at the studies that have been done, like the American Gut Project, where they've analysed the gut microbiomes of 11,000 healthy volunteers in high income countries like the US, the UK, the um, um, Ireland, etc. What we find is that the number one determinant overall of the diversity and makeup of your human gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet, okay? But other factors are important too. And the people you spend time with and the community that you live in and the environment you live in is also incredibly important. So we know that individuals who live in rural communities have a more diverse gut microbiome than those who live in a sanitized urban environment. And it only takes one generation, less than one generation for our gut microbes to look less agricultural and more industrial. Interestingly, among the Irish traveler population, they're the number one determinant of their gut microbial diversity 
isn't the food that they consume, it's the number of people in their family or in their community. And that has a real influence on your gut microbial diversity too. Even I was reading a paper recently about the effect of having animals in your home. I know you guys have pets. So if you're a child who's growing up with a household pet, you have a more diverse gut microbiome. And although having a pet in the house doesn't seem to affect the overall diversity of the adult gut microbiome, you probably share a few gut microbes with your cat. That, 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 that's incredible. Like it really is because, you know, the way nowadays we live in an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And I guess that means that our, our, like at a bacterial level, a microorganism level, we aren't, you know, spending time with other people. And obviously when you spend time with people, I imagine your bacteria and your microbiome pollinate or communicate with one another. And if you're lonely and isolated, you're not going to get that diversity or that exposure to other bacteria. A hundred percent. And if you're out of your natural environment and humans spend almost all of our time out of our natural environment, you know, in the, in the, um, there's some great research and I, I put this in the book as well. This fascinates me. Right. So if you look at our closest genetic cousins, um, you know, mountain gorillas, lowland, uh, or excuse me, lowland gorillas, Western lowland gorillas in like the, in, um, central Africa. Okay. So they're 98% genetically human. Uh, we're talking about the silverbacks, right? These big creatures. They look very human. You see those haunting photos where their faces look almost human. You see them caring for their children and you say, oh my God, they are so human, right? And 98% genetically, yes, they are human, right? But they live in the, you know, in the lowlands and the forest and they are almost 100% plant-based. They eat some termites, but they generally eat fruit and bark and seeds and nuts. And they spend 70% of the day just nibbling away, just eating grass, seeds, bark, whatever they can get their hands on, right? So they consume a huge amount of fiber and they live in their natural environment, which you could argue is our natural environment as humans. We're just, we're just big apes or small apes, really, right? So when we look at the human gut microbiome, we can broadly define all people into two different types, enterotypes. And it's, it's very broad, it's not very accurate, but we can say that we've got the um, Prevotella predominant and the Bacteroides predominant. And Prevotella predominant seems to be more beneficial gut microbiome. It's less common, particularly in people who live in cities or live in industrialized countries. And it's, um, it's the one that we tend to find in people who eat a lot of plants and a lot of fiber, the Prevotella. You, you boys are probably both Prevotella predominant, right? I hope I am too. Okay, but that's a very broad description. But yes, we can put every human into one of those two camps, broadly speaking. If you look at the Western lowland gorilla, they've got seven different enterotypes. So they've got seven different clusters of microbiome, seven different types. And yes, they do have the Prevotella um, enterotype, which they share with humans who eat a healthy plant based diet. But within them, the Prevotella isn't the healthiest microbiome because they've got other microbiomes that are better at digesting fiber and better at producing short-chain fatty acids and better at producing beneficial substances um, for their for their you know ape host. And I I just wonder if you know you know way back in human evolution, I bet our microbiome helped us a lot more than it even does now. Well, because that's fascinating like the enterotypes or whatever. And I remember reading about the American Gut Project and it talked about some researcher going out to tribes out in Africa and finding tribes that had incredibly diverse microbiomes that were 
in harmon- harmony with nature and taking samples of their microbiome and being blown away with it and then deciding to do fecal transplants and just to see how it affected his microbiome and his microbiome immediately became similar to theirs until he went back to New York and started living an urban type lifestyle and then it went back to a typical Western type microbiome. Yeah, you're right. And what's interesting, I mean, that's the Hazda tried, I think, in Tanzania. And so they eat like 50 to 70 grams of fiber play and they eat seasonally. And in countries like the UK and Ireland, the studies have been done showing that the microbiome stays pretty stable in its makeup and function all year round because we're eating pretty much the same foods all year round. But if you look at the Hazda and also, I mean, even more markedly, if you look at the Western lowland gorillas, you see that their gut microbiome flexes and changes as the seasons change and as their food eats. And I know, so for the gorillas, when they move from having bark and seeds and all that sort of thing to when all the, um, you know, the fruit are in season, they're gut microbiome microbiome changes and flexes. And I'm sure you've heard me and other people talk about the benefits of short chain fatty acids for human health, right? So if you eat a plant-based diet, and if your focus is purely on eating a diversity of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds and all those healthy things, like the three of us do, your gut microbiome, one of the advantages it has over the gut microbiome of people who consume an omnivorous diet, and this research has been done. This was published last year, 2020. Angelus et al. was the name of the paper. So people who eat vegetarians and vegans produce more short-chain fatty acids, which is really beneficial because they help to protect the intestinal barrier, regulate your immune system. They help to control our appetite and control our blood sugars. Among the um, these, these gorillas, they produce so much short-chain fatty acid because they're eating such a huge variety of plants and fiber that actually the short chain fatty acid becomes a source of calories for them. So now they're eating, you know, bark and wood and stuff that, you know, or whatever seeds, things that are very difficult to digest, but they're still getting calories because their gut microbiome is turning it in to short chain fatty acids. So this, I mean, we've gone way down the rabbit hole here, but but it's so interesting, right? I mean, we'll never know. We'll never know what the early human gut microbiome looked like. It's been lost forever, right? We'll never find it. But it's just fascinating to read these papers. And then, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you want to be giving your patients evidence-based advice that helps them to have a healthier gut microbiome, a more plant-based gut microbiome, because it has very real benefits in terms of improving health. Oh, you're brilliant. What I'm a conversation. This. this is so much fun. <laughs> Genuinely. Um, okay, maybe let's just bring it back because I know, like, I, me and Steve could go deep into these weeds for a long time because we're, like, I'm fascinated by this. A genuine yen. But could you talk about, like, because this makes it quite relevant. So we partnered and we built, like, following your lead, we built the Happy Gut course as an experiment. You know, we really wanted to see how it worked. And um, would you mind talking about that from your experience and your expectations of it and what actually happened with it? Yeah, well, the whole story behind that was, again, it was, um, well, you know, it was, it was very organic, wasn't it? I mean, around 20, it must have been 2017. Um, I bumped, I think I bumped into you, Steve. I was over to visit the shop and to eat at the famous Happy Pear and try the food. I already had some of the cookbooks and I went there and I, I think I bumped into you, Steve, in the shop. And you were doing the Happy Heart course at the time. And at that time, I, okay, I'm going to go back a bit further. I'm going to go back a little bit further. Okay, so September, 20, September 2017, I'm at a conference on inflammatory bowel disease in Leuven in Belgium. Fantastic 
conference, uh, one that I'd wanted to get to for years. And there was a keynote talk there by a really well-respected um, international researcher on inflammatory bowel disease. And he talked about the studies that he wanted to see in the IEBD world. And all the studies he wanted to be done in the next few years were about the medication, you know, medication A or medication B, which one works best. And that's absolutely fantastic. And I prescribe these medications all the time. So I'm genuinely glad that he was calling for those studies to be done. But I put my hand up in that meeting, which is just full of gastroenterologists from all over Europe. And I said, you know, Professor, those studies are really needed. But when I speak to my patients with inflammatory bowel disease, they ask me, what about food? And when I look at the evidence, it tells me that I should be telling them to unprocess their diet and focus on plant-based sources of calories. So we should be calling for more research in this area because that's what our patients really care about. And it was interesting as I asked the question, and really the question was more of a statement because I wanted to get this out there. The professor, who I respect a lot, looked uncomfortable and he's kind of, you know, looking around kind of, who, who's this guy? Why is he talking about food in a medical meeting? And of course, these meetings are all sponsored by pharma and the, the, the particular respected um, professor who was speaking had left clinical practice and was now working in the pharmaceutical industry. And it was interesting because there was a real chill in the room. And his response to me was, yeah, yeah, there's some research coming on that. But, you know, what are we going to ask these people to do? It, 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 you know, how can we ask our patients to change their food? And after that meeting, in the coffee mingling bit later, a few other consultants from around the world, a chap from Canada, a guy from, uh, from the Netherlands approached me and they said, you're right, you're absolutely right. And we talked, you know, we got talking and they were kindred spirits, you know. And later that day, I was on the phone to an old friend of mine, Andy Ramage, you know, Andy. Um, he's formed One Year No Beer. He wrote a book um, called Just Do This. Absolutely superb guy. And I was, I, I was due to speak to Andy anyway. And I was telling him this whole story about being at the conference and talking about food. And Andy's been plant-based for years and has his own, his own health transformation story. And he said to me, oh, I've just been at the um, Rich Roll Retreat in Cork. And um, I saw Stephen Dave there from The Happy Pair. And do you know a guy called Tom Hubbard, Dr. Tom Hubbard? I said, no, he said he's a GP in Cork. He was at the conference too. And he's a doctor like you who recommends plant-based because up to now, I'd just been doing this in my clinic. I hadn't kind of gone public with it, you know? You were so still he, secret. You were still, still in, in the closet. <laughs> I mean, not secret for my patients though. My patients like hear this from me all the time, but I hadn't done any public speaking or, you know, brought the message out there. So he introduces me to Tom. I phoned Tom. I remember your story that I've heard you told before, but when you came home after all your travels and you'd gone vegan and you phoned this chap you used to know and you said, hey, you're vegan. We're vegan too. Do you want to meet up? <laughs> you know? So it was like that kind of moment where I phoned Tom. I said, Tom, you don't know me. Andy Ramage gave me your number. I'm a vegan doctor. You're one too. Do you want to meet up? <laughs> it was pretty much the same paradigm, you know. And we got we got talking, and he said, "Look, there's a doctor in London called Shireen Kazam. She's a hematologist, and she's organizing a plant-based medical conference, which is going to be on in London um, in early 2018. You should speak at it. You should talk about gut health and inflammatory bowel disease." So I connected with Shireen. She invited me to speak on Crohn's disease, and I said yes. 
that went on to be an incredible meeting and it was really transformative for me in my career because meeting other doctors who've looked at the evidence come to the same conclusion really transformed everything for me um but so i was going to be at this conference i was obviously i had your cookbooks i was eating your food all the time and i said i've got to go to the happy pair and have some food and see what the vibe is like you know just maybe meet these guys so i met you steve and i wanted to speak to you because i wanted to invite you to that conference because i thought it would be great to have you guys there but we got talking and I asked you about the Happy Heart course, which you've been running for a number of years. And I asked you to tell me a bit more about it. And I'd already checked it out online and I was really impressed with it. And I told you what I thought was good about it and maybe what could be done a little bit better and invited you to come to the conference. And I think really that was kind of the start of a friendship, really. And a few months later, we ended up at a campsite in Dorset, sitting around oh, a campfire. Great, when I remember that. Yeah, talking about the gut microbiome and sleeping in tree houses and all this sort of thing. And you, I, th I think, Dave, it was you kind of took me aside, not on that, com I think it was during that conversation, actually, and said, look, the Happy Heart Court has been transformative. We've really, really improved a lot of people's lives, but we'd like to do the same for gut health. So how can we tackle it? How can, what approach can we take? So that was the start of the conversation and that led to the, the, the Happy Gut course. So the Happy Gut course is this incredible online course. When we designed it, you know, you guys thought it would be all about the food. I thought it'd be all about the microbiome and science. The wonderful Rosie Martin, who came on board as a dietitian, thought it would all be all about the FODMAPs, which we can talk about in a moment. But for me, the revelation of the Happy Gut course that we're a few years into it now, and we've had more than 20,000 people through it. We've got 10,000 people in the online community. And the Happy Gut Course is all about the community. It's all about the support that the people within this journey offer each other. These people who are looking to improve their digestive health by eating more plants in a way that is friendly to their digestive system. So these are individuals who have maybe been diagnosed with IBS or eating a standard Western diet or individuals who are eating a whole food plant-based diet and are still having symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, bloating, digestive discomfort, or people who just want to come on board and get more recipes and take part in the live Q&As with you guys and me and Rosie. But it, the community that we've built, this virtual community, which is global, has been absolutely transformative for so many people. And for me as a clinician, I mean, I went from talking to individuals on a one-on-one -on -one basis to talking to huge groups and having thousands of people hearing the message and improving their digestive health. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been an incredible journey, actually, the whole Happy Gut course and everything else that it's catalyzed, to be, to be quite honest. I, th I think the thing which was interesting for me about it was that, uh, like at the start of it, we kind of knew it would be effective for IBS or, well, you did, you're the gastroenterologist. We knew we could make good, tasty food that fitted in line with a healthy gut. And, uh, and you kind of thought, okay, well, it's going to be good for IBS. But then I think subsequently, you've kind of said that you thought it was very effective for a lot more type of things at helping improve many different inflammatory type diseases other than you're, just bloating and irritable. But irritable no, you're right. I mean, essentially when we went, went into it, I mean, our, our kind of entry point was that we wanted to help people who are eating a whole food plant-based diet and suffering with bloating and gas and indigestion, because that is something that often comes up when we're 
you know, when you're speaking at conferences, when you're speaking to large groups of people who've made the change. And we also wanted to help people with this IBS diagnosis. So the, the whole concept of FODMAPs, these fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyphenols, which are in healthy foods and promote fermentation and the formation of all those healthy products within your gut microbiome. The whole concept of removing those from your diet and then gradually reintroducing them has been part of mainstream gastroenterology uh, practice and mainstream dietetic practice for years, okay? This science came out of Monash University in Australia, and it's really effective. You take out these highly fermentable foods, and then you put them back in one by one, and people experience in 70 to 80 percent of cases of IBS. You, get, uh, you learn more about the foods that you tolerate. Um, most people come through this with an improvement in their gut health and a better understanding of the foods that they digest well, okay? But one problem with the FODMAP process is that FODMAPs are naturally found in healthy foods. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. It's one of the things that makes them so healthy, their capacity to be fermented by the gut microbiome, it's key. If you are doing a low FODMAP diet, you can do a low FODMAP diet by having bacon and eggs and white bread all day long. Those are all low FODMAP foods, but they're not healthy foods. And overall, they're not healthy for your digestive system in the long term or the medium term, probably not even in the short term. So what we did with the Happy Gut Course was we delivered these meal plans, which tick all the right boxes for the FODMAP process so we can eliminate them and then reintroduce them one by one. But from day one, you're also on a healthy whole food plant-based diet. So there's two things there that are going to help improve people's digestive health. It's a double whammy. So we're getting people to unprocess their diet and eat more plants. And we're doing it in a way that is kind of gut friendly and reduces those symptoms of bloating and discomfort that people can get you in those first few weeks as their tummies and the gut microbiome adapts to this healthier way of eating that many people just don't eat like anymore, right? I mean, most people eat a very fiber deficient diet. On the Happy Gut Course, we're getting 50 or 60 grams of fiber per day, but we're doing it in a very gut friendly way. So that was the revelation for me. And I remember being at, um, being at a conference in Australia in, I guess it must be over, well, you know, pandemic time now, I guess it must be two years ago now, you know, um, at speaking at a conference and meeting Dr. Neil Bernard and sitting having lunch with Neil, which is wonderful and getting to know the guy, just what a privilege. And as I was sitting there, I was getting little alerts on this thing. The phone never goes away. And it was an alert in the Happy Gut Facebook group. And it was someone talking about how they'd come into the course to deal with their bowel syndrome, but they also type 2 diabetes. And how over the last few days, they'd been checking their blood sugars really carefully and they hadn't needed to use any insulin for a couple of days. And this was a revelation for that patient. And it was such a privilege for me to be sitting there at that table with Dr. Neil Bernard, who has written some of the most convincing papers and studies on the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet and type 2 diabetes. And just have this message pop up on my phone, you know, it's, it's just um, the, the benefits are, 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 are far, far reaching. And Look, it shouldn't surprise doctors at all that gut health is so important. We've, we've like known this, you know, I've often said, you know, 5th century BC, Hippocrates of Kos, the father of modern medicine, taught his disciples 
all health begins in the gut. And with everything we now know about food and how important food is to human health, how important, how important the gut microbiome is to human health, he's absolutely right. I mean, in, in the UK and the, and the US and Ireland now, food is no longer an essential sustenance, become our number one or number two driver of disease and disability. So, you know, food is medicine. I know a lot of people recently have been saying, hey, food isn't medicine. Stop saying that. But I think the only people who say food isn't medicine haven't integrated healthy dietary advice into their medical practice. And what they will see is that, yes, food brings huge medical benefits to people. It's brilliant. I love this. Boom. And in terms of, can I, can I talk to you a little bit about fiber? So uh, oh, yeah. typically on a, the average, say, Irish or UK or Western diet, it's approximately 14 to 17 grams of fiber typically people get and as you mentioned it's approaching almost 60 percent of people's diet is ultra processed foods and yet when you talk of these silverback gorillas which were 98 same dna that live in nature they're getting anywhere from 50 to 70 grams of fiber can you talk about the importance of fiber as a prebiotic and just how important it is and it's kind of a, a, a nutrient that the majority of people are deficient in and if you read the back of the brand flag pack it says that fiber is it is no function other than passing out your bowel or you know, cereal packets. That was what we were brought up to believe, you know. No, you're right. So, you know, um, you know, Dr. Um, Dennis Burkett, fellow Irishman and surgeon who practiced, um, you know, went to college in Dublin, um, practiced in the UK. And then, you know, um, during World War II, ended up as an army medic in rural Africa. He was talking about this decades ago, 50 years ago. He wrote a paper, I think it was 1971, um, on um, on the diseases characteristic of Western civilization. And even then in the 1970s, having worked in rural populations in Africa and having worked in urban populations in the UK as a surgeon, he was it was incredibly obvious to him that when he was working in the UK, he would have to get out of bed at night to do an emergency operation on someone with an obstructing um, bowel tumor or diverticular disease with a perforation. Whereas when he was on call at night in rural Africa, of course there were other emergencies to be dealt with, but he would never see an obstructing colorectal cancer, or he would never see a case of inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease or colitis. And he started to do some incredibly important early research. And he, his early findings on the importance of dietary fiber and he was all about the fiber, that the fact is that over during the 20th century, the amount of fiber consumed by the average human just took a nosedive. And I talked earlier about how the human gut microbiome has been with us since the dawn of human civilization or, or evolution. Our gut microbiome's preferred food is fiber. We only get fiber from plants. And look, it doesn't matter what ancient humans ate. If they ate meat or not, they definitely ate a lot of fiber. They definitely ate a lot of plants as well. And then as we became more civilized and our food changed and the 20th century, our food transformed completely to the point where processed foods and shelf-stable foods became more available. Um, animal agriculture became industrialized. So suddenly we have access to volumes of meat that our, our great-grandparents would only have seen maybe once a year at a wedding or something, you know, a roast, a lamb roast or something like that. Things that were very, very seldom consumed at all um, are now consumed on a daily basis. You know, you can walk into a, 
walk into a pub and get a, a lamb chop for your breakfast if you choose, you know? So, so our food system changed completely, became fiber deficient. And now we're at a point in the 21st century where we're seeing diseases. I mean, the, the health statistics right now are just appalling in terms of digestive health, right? And we, we think that these conditions are, uh, are inevitable, that they're just gonna happen. So, but they're not inevitable, they're new, this is new. In the, in the US right now, young adults, one in three young adults have diverticular disease, a disease of fiber deficiency, pouches in the side of your bowel. You don't see it in people, in communities where people eat a high fiber diet. It costs the US health system two and a half billion dollars a year and it's a fiber deficiency. In the UK and Ireland and the US, colorectal cancer affects more than one in 20 adults in their lifetime. You look at the studies, even a paper published about two years ago, you go looking for colorectal cancer and precancerous polyps in rural South Africa. If you get a whole bunch of people and do colonoscopies on them, you won't find any polyps. You won't find any cancer. It's incredibly rare, and you can reduce your colorectal cancer risk in weeks by making the switch to whole food plant-based diet. In the US right now, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So fat deposition in your liver, which is driven by the standard Western diet, this high meat, high processed food, high junk food, high animal fat, high cholesterol, low fiber, low plant, low phytonutrient diet drives the accumulation of fat and inflammation in your liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That is now the most common cause of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis in the, U in the US. You think of cirrhosis being alcohol, right? Georgie Best being the example, right? For guys of our generation and older, you know, Georgie Best drank a lot of alcohol. He got cirrhosis, had a liver transplant and died. But in, the, in, in high income countries now where we eat a fiber deficient diet, food is becoming the number one cause and, of and cirrhosis. And where, where do you get fiber for anyone who's listening that isn't as much of a fiber enthusiast as the three of us? Where do you get yeah, fiber out? You can only get it from fruits, vegetables, whole grooms, legumes, beans, nuts, seeds, plants, Dave. Bark. You can only get it from plants. Absolutely. Uh, and we're and aiming for around 30 grams a day, isn't it? About, well, the, well the minim, at a minimum, minimum, right? So, so most dietary guidelines advise consuming 30 grams per day. Now, to eat 30 grams per day, you need to be looking at each meal and thinking, where are the whole grains? Where are the beans? You need to be thinking, how many pieces of fruit am I going to snack on each day? In my clinic, I, I mean, obviously, look, when patients come to my clinic, I don't drop all of the stuff that we've just been discussing on people straight away. You're going to overwhelm people. In in countries where we have a very fiber deficient diet, I start very simply. How many servings of whole grains do you consume every day? How many pieces of fruit do you consume every day? And how many servings of vegetables do you consume every day? And broadly speaking, rule of thumb, if the person is having three servings of whole grains, which is three large tablespoons or a nice bowl of porridge, if they're having three pieces of fruit and if they're eating three different vegetables per day, they are going to be hitting that 30 grams per day. But that's a very modest target. And for me, that should be regarded as the absolute minimum. I mean, there's a lovely study done in uh, London a couple of years ago, I think out of UCL. And they showed that the more fruits and vegetables and whole grains you consume every day, the healthier you are. And it didn't stop at five a day. It didn't stop at six or seven or eight a day. 
I mean, I, I personally probably consume well. Everything I consume is a fruit, vegetable, whole grain, nut seed, bean, or, or plant, basically. I don't know how many servings I'm consuming a day, but it's, I, I don't know, 14, 20? I don't know. I've never counted. But the evidence shows that people who could, who consume plants all day long, so everything they consume contains fiber, are the healthiest and most long-lived, happiest people in the world. So, so why wouldn't you make sure that fiber appears in every single forkful when you sit down to eat. Amazing. Great message. Amazing. And, and okay, so back to, so I want to bring this a little bit back up again. I've, I've so many questions, but I want to start with just, so microbiome, it's, it seems like it's almost like our internal medicine chest of little warriors that protect us and perform loads of different functions in our bodies. They're like, they're like our ally. They're like, they really are. And what are things like, obviously food and fiber is like right up there and you've kind of touched on nature or if I was a silverback gorilla in a different environment, I would be exposed to different, what are things that the average person listening to this that can do? Because it sounds like what you're talking about in microbiome, I want my microbiome, I want them to be like GI Janes and GI Joes and like superheroes. How you want the get... ninja. You want the ninja yes. gut microbiome. How do so, we get yes. level seven silverback so, microbiome? Yeah. So if you want your level seven silverback gut microbiome, number one, the diversity of plants in your diet. If you eat a whole food plant-based diet, you are going to reach a level of gut, excuse me, of plant diversity diet in your diet that is very, very rare in the Western world. When they did the American Gut Project a few years ago, as I said, the number one determinant was eating more plants, the greater diversity of plants. The eating more than 30 different unique plants per week, you unlocked these beneficial bacteria that people who ate fewer plants just didn't have. But fewer than one in 250 people made that mark. So it's very unusual in the Western world now to consume more than 30 different plants per week. If you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, you'll easily eat 50, 60, 70 different plants per week. So you'll be reaching a level of plant diversity and gut microbial diversity that is almost unheard of in the Western world. You know, um, That's number one. I guess Beautiful. we've already talked about that a lot, haven't we? Yeah. We got number two, spending time in nature. As we said earlier, our gut microbes are part of this world just like we are. And humans' natural environment is not a lovely room like I'm sitting in right now or the lovely kitchen slash studio that you guys are sitting in. It's out in nature. It's beaches and forests and woods and mountains. It's the outdoors. And we know that people who come from rural environments and spend their time outdoors and in nature have a more interesting and diverse and functional gut microbiome than people who live in a sterile uh, industrialized environment. So spend time in nature, get into gardens, get into a park. If you don't, if you can't get out in the countryside, just find your local park, sit under a tree, have your lunch in the outdoors. It will benefit your gut microbiome. The other thing is exercise. And look, I know you guys, and I am a big fan of physical exercise. We There's a lovely study done in uh, actually out of APC Microbiome Ireland, where I worked years ago, looking at the gut microbial diversity of Elite athletes, monster rugby players, lads, compared Woo! to real yeah, athletes, compared, Al, real athletes, yeah, real elite, like the absolute creme de la creme, <laughs> monster rugby players. Okay, so these are superhuman athletes, and among them, comparing them to mere mortals, 
Um, these <laughs> monster rugby players had a more diverse gut microbiome and more of the fiber-loving gut, micro, um, gut microbes. And it seemed to be more to do with exercise than diet in that, in that situation. And further research has shown that we can all improve our gut microbial diversity by getting physical exercise, so important. The other thing is sleep. I mean, I know you guys have been talking a lot about sleep recently. I've been focusing on it a lot more recently, actually, and I, I feel tremendously better for that. Our gut microbes seem to function on the same 24-hour clock, the same circadian rhythm that our body functions on. In fact, some researchers think that our gut microbes help to set our circadian rhythm, which is fascinating, right? Wow. Yeah. And we know that people who work night shifts or have disrupted disruptive sleep patterns that has a negative impact on the gut microbial diversity so focusing on sleep is important and the final thing i would say is to avoid unnecessary medication so particularly antibiotics i am not against antibiotics antibiotics have added decades to the average human life expectancy without antibiotics things like a simple dental infection could be life-threatening Without antibiotics, we could never do an operation. There would never be a cesarean section. You know, antibiotics, good old Alexander Fleming, 1928, changed the world for the better. But if you take a course of antibiotics, it does have significant effects on your gut microbiome. So only take antibiotics if your doctor thinks you really need them. If your doctor says, look, this is a simple ear infection or a viral chest infection or viral sore throat, I really don't think you need antibiotics on this occasion, but come back in a few days, we'll make a decision then. Take their advice, take their advice. And if you don't need an antibiotic, don't take it. And on on the topic of antibiotics, Al, I was reading there that approximately one third of your bacteria biodiversity in your microbiome is in essence disappears over a course of five days if you're taking a wide spectrum antibiotic. Is that true or is that approximate or how does that sound? Yeah, there's some truth in there. Um, There was a nice review. So when we look at the medical evidence, you know, we've got like small studies, randomized controlled trials. And but when you're really trying to answer a big question like that, you want to look at systematic reviews, you know, where they pull together all of the research studies and they decide which are the high quality studies. And then they put all of that information together and then they tried to give you the answer, right? So a systematic review can be really helpful. So there's a systematic review published last year on that exact topic um, on the effect of commonly prescribed antibiotics on our gut microbiome. And the first thing to say is there's some antibiotics that seem to have very little impact at all on the gut microbiome. Um, some commonly prescribed antibiotics like amoxicillin, which might be given for a chest infection, or nitrofurantoin, which might be given for a urinary tract infection, seem to have very little measurable effect on the gut microbiome. There are other um, antibiotics that are prescribed commonly, like doxycycline or coamoxiclav, and they do have very real effects on the gut microbiome within days, significantly reducing the diversity and the richness and altering the balance of the gut microbiome. And when you think about it, you know, you've got these hundreds of trillions of organisms that depend on their humans, depend on their food that they're consuming, but also depend on each other. You know, there could be microbes in there that depend on other microbes to produce substances that they thrive on. So it's just a really complex interplay. And if you take an antibiotic and it's an antibiotic is an antimicrobial by its very nature, you are going to generate shifts in your gut microbiome. You're going to kill off certain bacteria, which are naturally there. Other bacteria will flourish. And uh, the good news is, 
The good news is, though, when they did the systematic review and they pulled together the higher quality studies and they limited it to the antibiotics that are commonly prescribed by GPs, what they actually found is that your gut microbiome is more resilient than you might expect. And in most people, your gut microbiome comes back pretty much to where it was within a few weeks. Some papers suggest that that might take even three to six months. So generally, after antibiotics, your gut microbiome will rectify and will recover. Although there have been some papers showing that some of the effects are never reversed. And it, certainly that's the situation in adults. And, uh, you know, gut microbes are so important. We, we've discussed how, how important they are. And there are plenty of studies showing that if you are an adult who had a lot of antibiotics as a child, which you may have needed for a genuine reason, then you do have an increased risk of developing things like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, type 2 diabetes, um, even obesity later in life. And many researchers think that that's due to some sort of permanent perturbment of your gut microbial health. Wow. Alan we're Desmond, both. you are a wealth of knowledge. You My really God, are. Like, like we're both here fighting for questions. We're both underneath the counter here. Tapping oh. one of the, no, I got a question. I got a question. <laughs> and no, I, a, long, I, I, a long time ago, like someone told me that the, the, and this really has been a guiding light for me, is if you become, if you become an expert in something, there's two kinds of experts, right? There's the kind of expert who reads all of the papers and reads all of the knowledge and then keeps it to themselves and makes sure it remains mysterious so that it makes them seem like more of an expert, right? But the other sort of the expert, the other sort of expert is a sort of expert who goes really deep into one area and then tries to break it down and explain it so everybody can understand. And that's, for me, that's what I'm always trying to do. I mean, I just, I mean, I've been reading, when I read a scientific paper, and if it's applicable, if it's applicable, I say, my God, I've got to break this down. I've got to get this word out there, you know? Um, but if you ask me to load a dishwasher, I'm a disaster. <laughs> I I, I, a question came to me there when you were talking about it and this was you were talking about the five things to do to build a microbiome and this was just a, a pondering which came to me and could be complete nonsense but I was wondering I remember reading the book years ago Dr. Masaru Emoto talking about like our, how our how our thoughts and our internal dialogue and the music we listen to affects water and I was just wondering so our microbiome is something that lives inside of us and I'm wondering like you know, all the things we talked about were like food and exercise and sleep and getting in touch with nature and antibiotics. And I wondered, like, does our self-talk and how we treat ourselves, does this influence our microbiome? Or is there any research in terms of that? Because that's much less tangible and it's much more difficult to analyze. But what would your inter what would your gut tell you? Yeah, oh, good crazy one. Nice. I like what you've done there, Dave. But you know, the, Thanks, uh, Al. So, so the gut brain axis is real. Okay. So our brain, our primitive brain and our digestive system, and in some ways our microbes, are communicating with each other all the time. That shouldn't surprise anyone. That should not surprise anyone. If you have perfectly good digestive health, never had a problem in your life, and you get out of bed one morning and you receive some bad news, um, or you witness a car accident, or you hear that one of your family members has been involved in an accident, very common reaction you might feel nauseous, you might vomit, you might have diarrhea, you might have constipation for a few days. You may feel bloated and uncomfortable and uneasy. If you go for lunch with your friend the next day and you don't eat anything, 
they look, you say, oh, hey, you're not eating. What's up? You don't like the food. You say, well, you know, I had some bad news about my uncle yesterday. So I'm not hungry, not eating. And they say, okay, yeah, I get it. People, people understand this. The gut brain axis is real and emotions affect our digestive system all the time in a very real way. So if you are stressed or you're, you know, if your cortisol levels are elevated, and your adrenaline levels are elevated, the nerves that supply your tummy and your gut and the motility and the motor complexes in your gut do change. And you may become constipated for several days, to give an example. And if you've got less motor complexes migrating through your digestive system, guess what? The environment that your gut microbes live in has now changed. Wow. And so your gut microbes are going to change. So that's just one example. I mean, when you look at the research on how our emotions and our mood affect our digestive health, it's just, there are so many rabbit holes to go down, Dave. It, it's just, um, it, it, it feels infinite. And also I wonder, like, because you've talked about the, the gut-brain axis and that kind of in terms of its digestion. And what I'm getting from this conversation is that there's so much more to the microbiome and the gut that's so much more than digestion that it seems to be inherent to every function of our body. Absolutely. You know, so short-chain fatty acids, we mentioned them earlier, you know. So short-chain fatty acids are produced by our microbes when we consume food. You can make short-chain fatty acids when you eat animal products, but it's a very inefficient way to make them. And if you eat plant products with fiber in them, it's your microbiome's preferred source of generating short-chain fatty acids. You, as mentioned earlier, people who eat a plant-based diet have higher levels of uh, short-chain fatty acid production than meat eaters, right? So those short-chain fatty acids, 90% of them enter your bloodstream. Now, remember, these were made by your microbes. 90% of them enter your bloodstream. About 10% of them remain within the digestive system. And actually, they are an important energy source for the cells that line your colon. The cells, the little human cells that line your colon, get 70% of their energy from short-chain fatty acids. If you have an operation that takes things out of continuity, so you've got a bag, like a stoma bag, which a lot of people end up with temporarily or permanently, the residual large bowel, which isn't getting any poo anymore, isn't getting any microbes anymore, isn't getting any short-chain fatty acids anymore, it gets dysfunctional and red and sore and it starts to bleed and it becomes unhealthy. It becomes the extreme version of a fiber deprived gut. But those short chain fatty acids do enter our bloodstream. They, they bind lining cells in the lining of the gut that help to produce chemical signals that help to control our blood sugars and our appetite. They're integral. But the really interesting research that I saw last year, I'll, I'll give you two really interesting research papers I saw last year. Number one was the fact that short chain fatty acids like butyrate made by our gut microbes, they're in our spinal fluid. So this is the fluid that bathes our spinal cord and our brain. This is the medium that our brain floats in. There's short-chain fatty acids in there made by our gut microbes. And I was speaking to Dean and Aisha Sherzai recently about this, uh, the wonderful uh, preventative neurologist in Loma Linda, California. And I said, Dean and Aisha, what are our short-chain fatty acids doing for our neurological health? Because they do so much for our physical well-being. Are they also protecting our psychological well-being? And Dean said, yes, they are. Because the research shows that the short-chain fatty acids are crucial for maintaining the gut-brain barrier. 
So this is a, a physiological barrier that we have within our head, essentially, that avoids toxins entering the brain and causing damage. So these chemicals that are made by bugs, mostly when we consume plants, are in our brain, helping to maintain our, our brain-blood barrier to prevent toxins from entering our brain and causing us neurological damage. I mean, can you think of a, a, a more elegant example of how we are symbiotic organisms? It's just incredible, right? It's, um, it never stops fascinating me, I gotta say. I, like a beautiful dance. I'm, I'm bowled over. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I am is. also. Genuinely. Um, one final question, just to, uh, if you'll- Can I just do a summary before no. you ask the question? Just a summary okay, that, yeah. so, so, so we've got so far as that. So microbiome central to every function in our body. It's come, it's evolved over millions of years. It lives within us. We are part of it. It's a symbiotic relationship. The main thing is we can do for it is number one, eat fiber, eat a plant-based diet, eat as much of it you can, move more, sleep more. Time uh, outside. Yes, spend time outside. Like and avoid unnecessary And avoid things, avoid other things. And it's really good for our brain and it's amazing. Over to you now, Steve. Good work. Al, final question. I'd love you just to talk briefly about the Southwest Plant-Based Challenge because for anyone listening back it's probably two years ago, we got the privilege to go down to Sheldon, uh, down where Al lives, down in Devon. And Al had this dream of trying to create a blue zone down in the southwest yep. part of England, Devon, yep. which yep. is one of the most beautiful places ever. And that's where Al's from. And we got to stay in Al's town and we'd, uh, we had an amazing time. Uh, and we got to launch what Al had labeled the Southwest Plant-Based Challenge. And can you talk briefly about this? And Because um, you'll do a better job than I will. Yeah, but first of all, Steve, I'm from Blarney in County Cork. Let's not forget. <laughs> hey! Shout out to Blarney, all right? The incredible. You How must have kissed the Blarney stone loads of times. Seven times, Dave. And as soon as I get back to Blarney, I'm going to be over there to kiss it again. So I couldn't let you get away with that. But yes, I do live in southwest England in Devon in a town called Sheldon with my beautiful wife, Hannah, and her amazing kids. So yes, that's where I live now. So I just got to get that, get that out there. So <laughs> yes, done. thank you so much for everything you did to support the Southwest Plant-Based Diet Challenge. So basically we replicated research that had been done all over the world. Um, the basis for it actually was a paper published back in 1998 by a guy called Dr. Hans Deal in Kalamazoo in Michigan. So he had done this. And you know, a couple of years ago um, in rural uh, New Zealand, um, Dr. Luke Wilson and his colleagues in the broad study did this. And you know, numerous people have done this over the years. So what did we do? I mean, we've just talked about all this very in-depth science. We've gone really deep in the gut microbiome, but as like, this is all about food at the end of the day, it's food, 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 just like Dr. Michael Clapperow says, it's all about the food. So I, will, I spoke at a couple of GP conferences in late 2019, and I showed them all the studies, all the stuff on cardiac health, heart disease, type two diabetes, colorectal cancer, diverticular disease, ulcerative colitis, the Eat Lancet report, whole food plant-based diet will prevent 12 million unnecessary deaths per year, not to mention hundreds of millions of trips to the cath lab, prescriptions for um, statins and all the rest of it, okay? So I just convinced them that a whole food plant-based or plant-predominant diet is the healthiest diet in the world. Spoke for an hour and a half. And at the end of it, I said, now I want you, my fellow doctors, to experience this for the first time. So we had conceived the Southwest Plant-Based Diet Challenge. We ultimately, word of mouth went out there. I think ultimately, guys, probably about 300 people took part. We had 150 official signups. 
but a lot of people had friends or family members or partners or colleagues who were doing it with them, even though they hadn't registered. And for 28 days in early 2020, so coming up on 18 months ago now, um, we challenged them to eat a whole food plant-based diet for 28 days, no calorie counting, no portion control, don't be hungry was the mantra for the whole thing. Um, we used the Happy Heart online course. Um, the, the team over in Perville very kindly redesigned that and repurposed it for the Southwest Plant-Based Diet Challenge. We had a Facebook group. It was just before the pandemic. So we were able to have get togethers. You guys came over, we went to the schools. We had all these events. We had bring and share lunches at some of the local hospitals. And after 28 days of loving this food, we measured the results. And we had about 60, mostly doctors, who measured their blood pressure, body weight, and their cholesterol profile over the 28 days. And they all thought they were pretty healthy. They were predominantly eating an omnivorous diet with red meat and bacon and sausages and all that kind of stuff, kind of standard British or standard Irish diet. After 28 days of eating a whole food, high fiber, low fat plant-based diet, the people in the group who'd had high blood pressure dropped their blood pressure by almost 14 millimeters of mercury. Now, any doctor will tell you that's a significant improvement. You might need to prescribe one or two tablets to get that effect. The individuals in the group who had a high harmful cholesterol, the uh, non-HDL cholesterol, saw an average cholesterol drop of 26.5% in four weeks. So you'd people with a high cholesterol going to a normal cholesterol. In fact, at the end of the challenge, I think 98% of challengers had a healthy cholesterol level. And you ask your cardiologist, dropping your non-HDL cholesterol by 26% and your blood pressure by 14 millimeters of mercury, those numbers are big. Those are significantly improving your health. And in order to achieve that with medication alone, you would have to try really hard. The, those numbers were impressive. At the end of the challenge, three quarters of the participants said they would remain vegan or vegetarian going forward. The 25% who were still going to eat animal products became kind of very blue zony flexitarian where they weren't going to have bacon and sausages. They probably wouldn't have any red meat. They probably a little bit of chicken, a little bit of fish, but they'd be mostly plant-based. But what happened next was the, the big win because since then in the, in our locality, in the coastal area, so many doctors and health professionals are now switched on to this. They've experienced it for themselves and it keeps feeding back to me. Earlier today, I had a GP who came in to see me as a patient and they'd taken part in the challenge and they'd been at that launch event we had at Riverford and they talked about how transformative it was to their practice. And I'm really proud that some of my colleagues have taken this forward, like Dr. Jenny Corser and the team of volunteering and health locally. And we now have that program available to patients on the NHS. So patients on the NHS can be referred into what we call the whole life program and can experience those benefits for themselves completely free of charge with no judgment. We're not trying to turn everybody vegan. We just want them to unprocess their diet and eat more plants. So it, it's really been transformative guys. And I think it's going to, I think it will continue leading on to greater things. I mean, once we're able to travel again and have events again, we need to have another event to celebrate the success. It was stymied by the pandemic. It drew to a complete 
halt for a while due to the pandemic. And during the coronavirus pandemic, it became so apparent how this approach to nutrition is even more important. When I was working on the coronavirus ward, I had patients coming in who had high cholesterol, high blood pressure, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, living with obesity. And those patients were far more likely to end up in the intensive care unit, far more likely to die, have a negative outcome. It, and those diseases are completely preventable and reversible and avoidable. And I mean, it's, it's so important, right? Last August, the, um, the UN issued a report telling us how to avoid another zoonotic pandemic. Zoonotic pandemics aren't new. I mean, I still consider myself a relatively young doctor, kind of. Oh, thanks, guys. But this is not the first zoonotic pandemic that I've been a doctor during, you know. Um, shortly after I was married, back in 2009, Hannah and I were both um, registrars in Cork, and we were taking care of patients who were suffering from pneumonia due to swine flu. Okay, so that was a zoonotic pandemic that had come out of, out of the pork industry that come out of animal facilities, probably in the Southern United States. At the time, we thought that about 20,000 people had died in the swine flu pandemic. The subsequent work by the CDC actually showed that about 20% of, of, the, of the humans on earth were infected with swine flu in, in, during that time period. And actually the true death toll from the swine flu zoonotic pandemic may have been as high as half a million people globally. We're now in the middle of, another zoonotic pandemic and over three point nearly 3.5 million people have died from another zoonotic pandemic and our lives have all been turned upside down badly and some people's lives will never recover and many people have lost family members the un report published last august said the number one thing we can each do to reduce the risk of a future pandemic so our kids don't have to put on masks when they're in their 20s and 30s, is to remove or reduce the animal protein that we eat every day. Because the dietary habits that mean that the average American consumes 100 kilos of meat per year, or the average Irish or British person consumes 80 kilos of meat per year, those dietary habits, which are becoming more prevalent around the world every day, necessitate that we keep millions and millions of animals in unsanitary, unnatural, unhealthy conditions in close proximity to humans, and they make future zoonotic pandemics like coronavirus and swine flu and SARS and MERS inevitable. You know, a very wise man who we both know once said, that in order to improve and change and make positive change in your life, you have to suffer. You need to experience pain before you identify the need for positive change. And right now I'm wondering, lads, have we had enough pain? Have, have we suffered enough that we can make this change and just change our approach to food on a daily basis? I hope so. Because I don't, my children, my kids have just lived through their first zoonotic pandemic. And I want to do everything I can to, to prevent them from having to live through another. It's amazing. Al, that was beautiful. Wow. And very heartfelt. Wow. 
it's 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 i, I mean coming back to the southwest plant-based diet challenge i mean that was a fun challenge we just changed the food that people were eating but but it feeds directly into the coronavirus pandemic right it's so relevant and I think it's so relevant to everything, like this coronavirus aside, we've been reading a lot about the environment and the climate crisis and how food is at the epicenter of that as well. Like our, our our food system is killing the macro biome, you know, in a sense, it really is like it's it's the biodiversity. Our, our agriculture systems are really damaging, re- reaching habit. In the, on the, anyway, we could go lost. We could get lost in this. I mean, Alan Desmond, this show. you are phenomenal. That I was, just gonna, I, like, I, I feel like like I've, I've got a list here. As we were going, I was writing more questions. And like, honestly, I've enjoyed this so much. It's been absolutely mind-boggling. Al, you released an incredible book last year. Can you tell us about it? Called The Plant-Based Revolution. Please, can you tell all the listeners about it? Oh, thanks, man. So The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, it's a book. It's all about the gut microbiome healthy gut, healthy heart, healthy body, healthy mind. It's got 80 delicious plant-based recipes. It answers all those questions, protein, calcium. They're all in there. Do I need milk? Do I need to take supplements? And it gives a 28-day diet revolution plan so you can experience these benefits for yourself. It even has a foreword by everybody's favorite identical twin plant-based chefs. And <laughs> it's, been, it, it, it's been doing great, though. It's been such, I mean, it, it did, it was in, it was like the number one best-selling vegan cookbook in the UK and Ireland for a little while. Um, it's going to be released in the United States on the Woo! 18th of May. Cool. And just like just like I mean, you guys have been experiencing this for years, right? But to uh, thanks to the magic of social media, I get messages all the time on Instagram from people all over the world who have this book and are trying these recipes and experiencing these benefits for themselves. And it's 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 nourishing. It's just nourishing to know that you're that we now have this. We can, in our own small way, have this global reach. And and you know. Um, yeah, it's been phenomenal. It's, it's, it's been an absolute trip having the book out there. And the recipes nice. are from a really cool chef, Bob. Bob's oh, a really cool Bob's dude. super cool. And can you tell us on Instagram, where do people find you on Instagram? Oh, if you just, if you just type Dr. Alan Desmond in, or Alan Desmond into Instagram, you'll see me, this face. And you do a lot of evidence-based research. Yours is like, you've got, there's loads of, to de- dig people's teeth into, the, in, into it. Yeah, well, what I like to do is get a research paper that fa- fascinates me break it down make it really applicable to people but i also show a nice place of plant-based food because the science is wonderful but unless you can normalize plant-based eating as well you're not going to win over the hearts and minds or the bellies of the people reading that research because if you can show someone a research paper that tells them that for example people who eat a whole food plant-based diet are 65 percent less likely to get type 2 diabetes that's one thing but if you can also show them your breakfast in the same post and it's some lovely smoked tofu with a hollandaise sauce on some whole grain flatbreads with some greens, they go, ah, I make the connection. Here's the science, right. here's the food. That looks ah, all right. Good. Ah, you're, you're amazing. Really? really? That was wonderful. And thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, for just for your being you, for your friendship. Oh, yeah, guys, it's yeah. I, the feeling's mutual. I mean, thank you so much for, I mean, making me part of the Happy Pair family. It's It's been an absolute joy. Al, your daddy, that was, geez, uh, your ending was phenomenal. It was like, it was so heartfelt there. Oh, it really was. Um, it just but came out, it was like, Zoonotic pandemic. I've never heard of that word before. That's, that, that's a great it, one. It, I was just talking to Hannah about this yesterday. I was saying, you know, 
it was funny how it came up. It was funny. I was speaking to some of the nurses in endoscopy this week. Uh, so I spent a lot of my time in the endoscopy unit doing procedures. We're having a coffee break. And during the pandemic last March, they'd been, you know, endoscopy shut down. They'd been up, sent up to work on the ward and our ward turned into a coronavirus ward. And we weren't doing gastroenterology anymore. We were now coronavirus doctors, you know, it was, it was really stressful. I mean, it was an honor to be part of it, obviously. And, you know, real privilege to be there with people who were so unwell and be part of the whole NHS response. But they said to me, um, the nurses said to me, oh, it was so stressful being up there because we're used to working in endoscopy for years. And now we're back in the wards. And when you turned up as the consultant, even with all your kit on, it was so lovely because, you know, it was a familiar face. And I said, yeah, it was nice to see you guys up there too. It was such a difficult time. And they said to me, and the word went out among all the nurses on the WhatsApp group that Dr. Desmond was on the ward and he wanted a fluid balance on every single patient. So that's a chart at the end of the bed that says how much fluid has gone in and how much fluid has gone out. It's a fluid balance. We do that in medicine, you know? So you consumed three liters and you had 500 mils of fluids and you basically pissed out three and a half liters. Therefore, you're down a half a liter, okay? It's really important. And I was talking to Hannah saying, so she said that they, they put that message out. And then it occurred to me that the reason that I, in that stressful period, wanted fluid balance on every single patient was because I was a doctor during the swine flu pandemic. And when we were taking care of patients during the swine flu pandemic and they had pneumonia, it was beneficial to, as we say, run them dry. We would want the patients to be slightly dehydrated so they got less pulmonary edema. And it just struck me, yeah, this is my second zoonotic pandemic. This is the second time I've treated people in hospital for a, for a disease that came out of animal agriculture. So it's it, it just, it just like, that's a thunderbolt, you know? Jeez, very good linking things together, Al. Jeez, that was... Like, honestly, I've got a list. We're going to do this again if you do it another time because I, I, like, uh, there was loads of questions there I didn't get to. And people will love that. I got a feckin' ton out yeah, of that. Yeah, sure. I was, my mind is blown again. Again. Anyway, it's really cool hanging out with you guys, though, you know? Yeah, I didn't have yeah. any Bob Dylan story, though. I mean, Glenn, ah, hey. Glenn wins on that one, you know? Yeah, you got pretty good, though. You got the equivalent of like Neil Bernard, dinner with Neil Bernard. That's probably your Bob Dylan there. Yeah, that's Let's my be Bob honest. Dylan Let's story. Let's be yeah, honest, yeah, Sal. Yeah, and, yeah, and then you yeah. had a real Zach Bush ending. It was beautiful. Was oh, like, oh my God. I was like, I was like, Jesus, what do I say to that? So it was yeah. great. Al, you're really well, brilliant. That was absolutely class. Genuinely, I, I got as much out of that as any podcast we've done, that microbiome section. And I've got a, I've got a litany of questions I want to ask Al again. I definitely want to do that again. Uh, Al, we've we've worked and hung out with Al so many times, and, and like even every time I see him speak, I go, "Jesus, my God, I'm so grateful Al's on our team." But even just to sit there and actually ask him specific questions, I was blown away just by the the breadth and the depth of Al's knowledge. Yeah, and once again, like let us know on social media what you thought about this. Check Al out and keep sharing this because the more you guys support this podcast, the more it gives us fuel to keep going, getting new guests and delivering good conversations so uh, uh thanks mel for listening um and sending loads of love wishing yeah. you a great week ahead thanks mel and cheers. here's to a happy microbiome Woo!